This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Proud to say you set a record. More um, minority members and people of color are in the staff than ever before. That will come out this afternoon. And just tangentially on the political side, we're trying to increase diversity in the Senate and in the 2024 campaigns. Um, you're going to see a large and increased number of African Americans running for the Senate. Uh, we already have three very strong candidates in Delaware, Rochester, in Texas, all red and in Maryland also, Brooks. And you're gonna hear from more, you're gonna hear about more, there'll be a few surprises. Um, so we're increasing diversity at both the employer and employee level, and that's a mission of ours. So thanks for coming, thank you, Amy, and thank you all for um, uh, us working. Excellent. Better America. Very good. I, uh, I'm kind of laughing because you don't talk about surprises in front of reporters, but they're, they're going to try and figure out what they are. Uh, but thank you. Um, we've also been joined by uh, Chris Coons and Chris Van Hollen, Sheldon Whitehouse, Blumenthal, Tammy Baldwin, Bob Casey, uh, Debbie Stabenow, Bria Cantwell, and Alice Padilla uh, from the great state of California. I think and Maisie Hirono is here. The party can begin. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Corey. Um, good morning, everyone. I'm just sitting here feeling a great sense of excitement and enthusiasm to get into the conversation uh, with folks from the black media. If my colleagues know this, uh, black media has played an extraordinary role in this nation's uh, evolution. Uh, my parents met here in the 1960s, and it was the black radio of Washington, D.C., black DJs, uh, black media that was a sustaining force of information, activism, uh, and even more so, uh, a sustained voice of the movement. And this tradition goes on today. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, the black media that's here, represents the black media here on the questions. Uh, and I'm also proud, as I think as Senator Schumer and Amy Klobuchar have already mentioned, about this Congress, my colleagues that are surrounding us right now. I've been in the Senate almost 10 years, and this has been the, the best two to three year stretch I have seen in getting things done for the African-American community. And often it's not talked about. Whenever I go to barber shops, uh, yes, I go to barber shops. Um, uh, uh, you know, places like Newark where friends they don't say it. And I often get uh, in the back and forth with a lot of folks about, you know, what's, what's the Biden administration done for black people or what, whatever. I always bring my receipts and just start going down from environmental justice, economic justice, black businesses, black entrepreneurialism, just going through things over and over again. I had a big press conference in Newark 
on an issue that's not that sexy, but people know how urgent these issues are, that the billions of dollars we put into urban tree planting in one of our big bills, and sitting in a city that often has temperatures 16 degrees higher than even our surrounding suburbs with asthma rates, and black children are 10 times more likely to die of asthma complications than a white child with asthma complications. To have uh, colleagues that are constantly pushing these issues and advancing them and scoring real substantive points in this legislation and pieces of legislation has been extraordinary. And so for my experiences on criminal justice reform with a judiciary chairman like uh, Dick Durbin, who in every single effort from judges to legislation is trying to peel back mass incarceration, uh, to have someone like Debbie Stabenow head of the Ag Committee, who the fights we've had around black farmers, the, the, the strides we've made, even though we've faced a lot of frustrations. Um, I am so proud of this group. I want to say one thing about Chuck Schuber before I pass it on uh, to Reverend Dr. Senator Warnock, uh, more titles than the Newark Public Library. Um, um, is, uh, there's two things about Chuck's leadership that I think are really worth knowing before we go on and just don't get talked about enough. Uh, when I came to the Senate 10 years ago, this was the least diverse place I had ever worked. And uh, I remember going in looking at some committees and seeing all white senators and all white staffers behind them. Uh, 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 Brian Schatz and I went to Chuck and asked him to have every uh, senator um, uh, publish their diversity statistics over their staffs. And Chuck did it with alacrity and did more. He wanted to put the Rooney Rule in place and a bunch of other things. Uh, since there, it's been seven years now, Chuck, since we've been doing this, uh, the diversity on Senate staffs has shot up amongst Democrats, not just African-Americans, but Latinos, Asian-Americans, the gender diversity on staffs and in positions of power, uh, black and, uh, and Latino, black and brown chiefs of staff, black and brown legislative directors. Chuck's contributions in this uh, area are unbelievable, and I've seen the difference it's made in legislation. Chuck himself has some anecdotal stories about discussing issues with black members of his staff and changing his, or helping to evolve his positions on certain issues. The second thing I want to say about uh, Chuck's leadership, which is not entirely appropriate for this room, but just politically, Chuck, you, you have done an extraordinary job on the campaign side uh, in getting diversity into the DSCC and the decisions were made, how the money is being spent. And then, frankly, what has me incredibly excited is how you are supporting more and more uh, uh, black candidates around this country. And I'm confident uh, Chuck has a, and this I won't talk about fully here, but the African-American women that are coming back to the Senate has gotten very uh, excited, the promise of black women serving in the Senate. We've only had, there's been 2002 senators in American history, only two of them have been black women. Uh, but I think, Chuck, you might double that number potentially in the coming election, God willing. God willing. Um, God willing and the creek don't rise. Um, but but uh, I, the, the African-American candidates that you are working with other members of this, uh, of our Senate Democrats, uh, uh, has been really encouraging to me. And so from the policy uh, and the legislation to the politics to even the way this institution runs, in 10 years I've seen a lot of really promising changes that I can see when I walk around the community that I still live in and, and, and a majority African-American city and a majority African-American district. So I'm grateful for my colleagues for their leadership. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of pushback right now. We're seeing a lot of challenges with the Supreme Court, a lot of challenges even with some of our colleagues, even in mentioning the word racism these days. Um, but this is a stalwart, strong group. And I'm, I'm really proud 
uh, to be a colleague with the people that are around this table. And with that, uh, sir. <laughs> Doctor, Doctor Reverend, this, this is what happens when you when you're the new kid on the block. Good, good morning, everybody. Thank, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, this is always uh, an exciting day for me, uh, a day I look forward to on my calendar, and uh, grateful for the opportunity to work with with all the folks who are who are around this table. Um, we've been able to get a lot of amazing things done, as as Sunday Booker pointed out. Uh, over the last two years, and um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Looking forward to the work that will continue to get done. Um, there are a range of issues that impact all of us generally, um, but they land differently for uh, the African-American community. Um, long before I came to the Senate, I was very much involved with working on the issue of health care. Dr. King said that of all the injustices, inequality in healthcare is the most shocking and the most inhumane. Uh, so we continue to work on that on that front. I'm still trying to get my beloved Georgia to expand Medicaid. We're one of ten states still holding out, uh, and it's it's shameful. And I don't I don't even understand the political math at this point. I understood the, the argument. You know, as crazy as it was, I'm sure it was going on a decade ago. Uh, but politically, I'm, I'm not sure what, what there's a gain in doing this at this point. But uh, the impact is 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 difficult to calculate. 600,000 working Georgians in the health care coverage gap. But to the credit of this group, when we passed the uh, the um, American Rescue Plan, uh, we were able to get incentives in that package four states like Georgia are still digging their heels in uh, to further incentivize them to do what they should have done years ago. Uh, and we left, our state leaders left all that budget on the table and left hundreds of thousands of Georgia's millions of Americans in the health care coverage gap. So we continue to remain focused on that. But in, in the interim, uh, there are things that we are doing to address the issue of health care. I'm glad that we passed uh, uh, the insulin cap bill last Congress. Uh, I think it is significant uh, that even uh, as some of us, myself included, were headed into a, a, uh, an election, we were able to get, um, I think, seven or eight Republicans, seven Republicans on the insulin bill. So we have, I have reintroduced uh, my bill that would cap the cost of insulin for everybody. And again, this, this, this impacts a lot of people. Um, but it disproportionately impacts the African-American community in Georgia. We have one million diabetics. I think there's a reason why Senator John Kennedy on the other side of the aisle has joined me. He's got more diabetics in Louisiana than we do in Georgia. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a path for us getting this done. We're getting closer. And I want to thank the majority leader for his, his leadership uh, on this issue. Speaking of health care <clears throat> and black women, um, we have to continue to work hard on this issue of, of maternal mortality. Um, that we would tolerate this uh, uh, speaks volumes to the inequities in our, in our system, that black women could die, could be three to four times more likely to die uh, in child labor, in child, or as a result 
uh, within the first year than their white counterparts um, is, is just something we shouldn't tolerate. So I'm glad that we were able, uh, last year I, I uh, introduced and we passed a piece of legislation, Senator Rubio and I, uh, on this issue. And what I say to folks who are, who say that they're pro-life, uh, is is that if you if you're truly pro-life, then we all work together on this issue. This is something we can do something about. And um, I'm glad that we were able to work together on that issue. And uh, Senator Padilla uh, and I have are, have introduced uh, yet another bill, or reintroduced another bill to address maternal mortality. <coughs> Senator Tim Scott and I work uh, together every year to fully fund HBCUs in the appropriations process, and I look forward to that work continuing. Um, also, um, I'm on the Commerce Committee. One of the bills that we know will get passed this, this year is the, uh, the uh, FAA bill. And um, we're very much focused on that. Uh, in the context of that bill, I'm working on strengthening our nation's aviation sector. I recently met a young black man at the Peachtree DeKalb Airport in my state. He's trained to be a pilot. And I was so inspired <clears throat> by him. I think about him often uh, because he had that light that you want to see in a young person's eyes. Uh, he had found that thing that he wanted to do. Howard Thurman said, ask not what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go and do that. Because what the world needs is people who come alive. And he had that fire in his eyes. He just wanted to be a, a pilot. Um, but he's been at it for 10 years. <clears throat> he spent $100,000 of his own money. And he continues to encounter barrier after barrier. He has all of the intellect, the ability to do it, but the path is entirely too hard. So when we look at the future of our workforce sector, uh, in aviation and in other sectors, not just pilots, but uh, flight engineers, mechanics, uh, it is in our enlightened self-interest our collective interest uh, to make sure that kids, regardless of what zip code they're born in, that they have a, a viable path uh, to these jobs into the future. And uh, that's something that we continue to work on. We cannot <clears throat> back up one bit on the issue of gun safety. And um, I'll continue to push my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to address this issue. Every now and then we have a mass shooting we have almost every day uh, this year. And every now and then something happens that shocks our conscience and it makes it to the front of the headlines and you all know the dance. And then we go back to business as usual. Um, we have to continue to push on this issue. I'm glad we passed the first gun safety bill in 30 years on a bipartisan basis last Congress, but we have to build on that progress. And as we talk about mass shootings, we have to recognize that in black and brown communities, if you aggregate the carnage in Baltimore, mm -hmm. in Atlanta, in New York, in St. Louis, uh, we've been dealing with mass shootings every single day for years. And uh, we got to deal with this issue of gun safety. Finally, uh, the framework in which all of this gets addressed is our democracy. Uh, so we will remain vigilant on the issue of voting rights. Uh, later this month, I plan to work with Senator Klobuchar, uh, Chair Durbin, and others in our caucus to reintroduce legislation that will protect the right to vote for every eligible American 
and to ensure that their vote is counted. Democracy isn't just another issue that sits alongside other issues. The right to vote is preservative of all other rights, and so we have to make sure uh, that we can see progress on that front. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, we're going to go in alphabetical order, and I will remind my colleagues that in the order of people are sitting with questions, we're going to get everyone a question in, I promise, but April Ryan begins with an R, so let's keep that in mind. For everyone that we uh, try to keep our answers short and make sure everyone gets a question, we start with you, Hadia uh, Goba from Semaphore. Thanks. Hi, I'm Hadia Goba with Semaphore. Thank you all for doing this. So I guess um, I'm a Hill reporter, so I have to ask a Hill-centric question. I am very curious with the SCOTUS affirmative action decision. Can you talk about, like, is this a new era, and how are you... It, are you worried that it's going to make programs like student loan um, cancellation more difficult? Are you, is there any concrete thing that you're doing to codify any of these things or to push the ball forward, considering you'll probably get a lot of objection from the um, Supreme Court? And just a campaign question, I know you talked about introducing more senators. Uh, to run in offices, are you, what are you doing to, as far as staff, so that there's people to navigate those candidates into different um, black communities throughout, you know, the country? So that's great. Can I jump first to Senator Whitehouse to maybe talk about the Supreme Court in general and, it's, and what we're seeing, maybe Senator Durbin, you can talk specifically about the one case if you'd like, sir. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, I'll yeah. let Senator Schumer talk about the politics of it. I'll be very brief because Dick is the chair and has been our leader on this, but I, the one point that I would make is that when we're dealing with the Supreme Court on a whole host of issues, we have to see it as a deliberate political actor acting on behalf of a specified small group of right-wing billionaires who have an enormous role in getting those judges onto the court, who communicate with them regularly through MQQRI front groups, and who are slowly but surely chipping away at an agenda that they could never get through Congress, but are achieving through their control and capture of this Supreme Court. And I'll just leave it at that. I just add that uh, we're going to have a hearing next week on Supreme Court ethics and be marking up a bill. It'll be Senator Whitehouse's bill. It'll be our starting point. Uh, this uh, Supreme Court session has ended and they're gone for vacation. I wish them many sunny days on vacation, but there's a shadow over their lives now in terms of what's been disclosed. Uh, justices uh, on the both sides of the political spectrum who have questions that have gone unanswered. Highest level of courts in America, lowest standard of ethics in our government. What is so unique about these nine people that they are not accountable to anyone at this point? Uh, we're going to have an important uh, hearing on that, and I think a markup. Uh, and I just remind everyone, we have, I think, with the help and the guidance of President Biden, written an enviable record and extend the opportunity for service in the courts uh, to minority members and women. And women. It is uh, unprecedented what has occurred. We did it for two years with an evenly split Senate, 50-50. And now we're doing it with 51 and 49, which is just slightly better. 
but I think there's more that can be achieved. I know there's frustration that we haven't done more, but uh, I think uh, we've written quite a record so far and we'll continue to. We rely on Chuck, of course, to take uh, all the nominees that come through our yeah. committee through the floor process. And each one takes at least two votes, maybe sometimes three votes. We have to carefully calibrate that attendance in the Senate uh, with support of each of these nominees. It's not an easy assignment, and uh, I think we've written quite a record, uh, and I'm proud of the caucus in that regard. Our, our leader on the committee, uh, there are many leaders, but one is a fellow named Booker from New Jersey, who has uh, really done an exceptional job. Corey, thank you for that. Just two other issues that, on student loans, we are pushing Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warnock, myself, and the leaders on this issue. There are other ways to make sure that student loans are forgiven, not just way that was done and thrown out by the board, and we are pushing the administration very hard to do it. They are coming up with plans to do, to pursue an alternative route. We are not giving up on this issue. It is so, so important. It's an issue that affects all Americans in our future, and particularly racial justice. 28% of the total wealth gap in America between black and white is just by student loans alone. Uh, on, on staff diversity, we mentioned it on the Hill. We're doing the same thing at the Senate Campaign Committee and on the super PAC. In fact, we help fund large numbers of the uh, uh, people, groups of color who do the voter registration and do the vote, get out the vote. We have a very close relationship, for instance, with Adrian Stropshire at Black PAC, which we help fund. Okay, thank you, Chuck. Uh, Dalen Goff with uh, Ebony Jess. You know, I talk loud, so I'll make sure. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dalen A. Goff. Uh, I am here because I am the president of JET. So I'm looking at this in a little bit different uh, standpoint than just asking a question, but more so looking at it from the overall standpoint of Black-owned media and the need for it in this particular climate as it's been needed in all of history. You, you, you mentioned uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. He actually wrote an advice column in Ebony. A lot of people don't even know that. Um, and also just the fact of the matter that um, President Biden name checks Jet on a couple of occasions when talking about what happened September 15, 1955 with the Emmett Till photos and how that really fueled the civil rights movement in a very similar way that social media and Twitter fueled the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd. So I'm more so here looking at this from a overall landscape and looking at how this body and other bodies can be able to help and make sure and what are the things and the steps that can be implemented to make sure that there is still the business support for black owned media specifically in this post George Floyd, you know, we saw all the things that happened with, you know, posting, we're going to invest in black owned media, it's needed because it absolutely is. But where's that additional and can we make sure we have that additional pressure to be able to put on the business case because we need to make sure from a financial standpoint that we're around for the next 70 years as we've been around for the previous 70. Excellent. I just, you know, what one of my colleagues perhaps wants to add more on the financing side. But I think, you know, we are devoted to making sure that all media gets compensated for their, um, for their content. And that is, um, we see with social media some positives, but we also see um, that there has been a problem in terms of compensation for what we call the snippets on the news. And that's why we have a bipartisan bill I do with Senator Kennedy that has 
gone through the Judiciary Committee again that makes very clear that news outlets have to be compensated um, for their content. That's the issue that's raging in California right now as well as in Canada. And so far, we haven't done anything to make sure that there's safeguards in place. So that happens, and I'm devoted to getting that done. I like to say, Senator Klobuchar, I appreciate your ticket master. I'm not a Swifty, but uh, you don't have to helping me out on that. Appreciate that. <laughs> and, uh, that is another big issue, and Senator Blumenthal and I and others have been working yes. on that. I want to invite a couple. You have a number of chair people of uh, committees here that are doing a lot, from Senator Cantwell, who is frankly been heroic to me and doing things like closing the digital divide and uh, getting expanding broadband access all the way to uh, Senator Brown when it comes to access to capital um, and uh, dealing with a lot of the challenges that black businesses have. So I, I maybe just invite them to speak to some of these issues. Well, thank you, Corey. The um, majority leader helped us in the COVID package and basically getting a tax break for media companies to retain journalists. And the reason why that's so key is they're the bread and butter of creating the content that is the value and the competition. Our view is that you don't have perfect information if you don't have competition. And we want to see diverse voices in that competition. That tax credit that we were able to get in that saved many media organizations and this organization, Black Media, played a key role in helping us get that tax credit expired at the end of last year. We would like to see it continued while we sort out this issue. Obviously, the internet commoditized um, advertising and took away revenue stream. I believe unjustly, as Amy points out, that there is content that um, the, the big platforms basically, you have a story and you basically, they click on it. You're not getting that revenue, they're getting that revenue. And uh, we've struggled with where we, uh, whether we open fair use again, lots of different avenues. But in the meantime, as the models continue to develop and we come up with legal solutions, we don't want to lose one more journalist. We don't. And so Senator Schumer and I and others have been working on how can we continue that tax credit, which covers about one third of the cost, uh, how we could continue that tax credit through the rest of, uh, for the next two or three years while we sort out the rest of this issue. So we're working very hard on that. We think we have an idea about how to do that by the end of the year, and we'll keep all of you posted on it. I'll take well, brief. Corey, thank you for talking about capital. Um, my first year in the Senate, uh, my zip code, where Connie and I live in Cleveland, had the highest foreclosure rate of any zip code in the United States, and it obviously peaked and began what this committee, this committee has always been called the Senate Banking Committee, because it was about Wall Street. Uh, once we took over in 2021, it's about housing. Senator White and I are working on, on pushing back on private equity coming in and predatory lending and, and buying predatory investing where they come in and buy homes and raise rents and don't keep up the, the, the properties and it pushes. It just makes it that much harder uh, for African-American families and low-income families to invest. Uh, related to that, um, the Federal Reserve, we are going to vote today on our committee, Banking Housing, will be the first, we'll vote on confirmations. Um, be the first time there's ever been uh, two people of color, let alone three people of color in the Federal Reserve. We will, um, we will confirm two African-Americans, uh, first Latino ever out of a seven-member Federal Reserve, similar to what uh, you've all done, Dick and Sheldon and Amy and Chuck and Corey. 
of oil and fuel and judiciary and the federal federal bench, and we're seeing the same kind of progress. And what Chuck said, it's not just racial and gender diversity. It really is professional diversity. Uh, Lisa uh, Cook is a labor expert, as is, uh, is, is Dr. Kugler, the first Latina on the Fed. Uh, they look at things very different from the typical kind of economist who has sat on the Fed in the past. Okay, thank you. Uh, Bill Lewis with Huffington Post. Thank you. And we've also been joined by Senator Markey and Senator Carbon. Thank you. Okay, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, two really quick questions. Uh, in the wake of the death of 32-year-old uh, track star Tori Bowie, um, Black Maternal Health has been back at the yeah. forefront. I'm just curious, what uh, are leaders doing to adjust the maternal health crisis? And then my second question, um, redlining, housing discrimination has been uh, kind of systemic in, in this country, um, and climate change, it disproportionately affects uh, communities of color, black folk, um, historic sites, predominantly in the South, are at risk due to climate change. Um, what are the solutions uh, for that? Thanks. Okay, well, Senator Warnock, take the maternal health, and Senator Smith, who heads up the subcommittee on housing, take your second question. Yeah, th thank you so much for the question. Uh, just earlier this week, I reintroduced legislation uh, alongside my co-sponsor, uh, Senator Padilla, on addressing the issue of maternal mortality. So we, we are looking we're continuing to address that issue directly, as well as the, you know, the larger issues that, that impact it. This is not an issue that emerges in a vacuum. So when you address issues around poverty and a whole range of concerns, uh, that's one way of getting at it. But the thing that is striking about the black maternal mortality rate is that this applies to black women, as you point out, with this incredible track star who died alone in her home. Uh, that income and status doesn't protect black women. So these these are serious inequities, and uh, it's something that we remain focused on. I don't know if Senator Padilla wants to add to that, but but it's work that we continue to do. Senator Smith, um, thank you so much for the question. Thank you for the question. I'll just note that um, the. Yeah, I live in a city that has the greatest disparity between white homeownership and black homeownership of any place in the country, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you can see and you can trace the um, history of redlining in our community today to differences in property values and the deep segregation that still exists in our city. So the legacy of redlining is still with us today, as you know so well. This is an issue about access to capital. It's an issue about inequities in our financial system that Sherrod and I and others on the Banking Housing Committee work on all the time. And what happens then is that drives people to um, the topic of the subcommittee hearing that we held yesterday. There has been what we think is an explosion in the use of contract for deed, uh, financial mechanisms targeting black and brown communities and immigrant communities, which basically promise people that they can own their own home when in fact they don't own their own home and one missed payment and they lose everything. And we are seeing this happening in Minneapolis, particularly targeting uh, Minneapolis and Minnesota, particularly targeting the Somali community, um, but it's happening in states like Georgia and Texas and um, other places around the country. So. These are some of the issues that we have to uh, tackle as we address lack of access to capital, the steep disparities that still exist in home ownership, and uh, the work that we need to do to have basic consumer protections 
for folks that are getting ripped off by these contract for deed operations. Okay, very good. Um, and we're just going to keep going because we have seven. Oh, she mentioned, cli she mentioned climate change, and I just wanted to say that uh, the bill that we passed last year, 40% mm -hmm. of all the money, the $369 billion, will go to communities of color, go to disadvantaged communities. Uh, and uh, there's going to be a climate bank that the administration announces on uh, Friday. Uh, and that climate bank, which Christian Hall and I created, uh, is going to be uh, disproportionately targeted then on inner city uh, communities for solar, for energy efficiency, upgrading their housing. Uh, and you also mentioned discrimination in jobs. And uh, 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 algorithmic justice is very important because of discrimination <coughs> in the real world is moving online. And I've introduced an algorithmic um, uh, justice bill uh, so that these uh, big companies don't allow black and brown people to be discriminated against through algorithms for their job searches, for housing searches. And it's absolutely imperative that we move online to fight that discrimination. Very good. Thanks for adding that, Ed. Um, and thank you, Alex. Did you want to add one thing about the maternal? No, just to echo what uh, Reverend Warnock said. We're not new to this issue. Uh, a couple of years ago, we just amplified a lot of the outreach we did when we first introduced it, but uh, obviously it's over time. Okay, very good. Uh, Roland with Unfiltered. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, I, Roland, I just want to say he had a viral video this past yeah. week that was extraordinary, and uh, I shared it a lot with a lot of friends. Uh, um, I, sometimes I forget that you're a journalist and not uh, an activist because the response you gave on what it means to be pro-life was extraordinary. Extraordinary. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, glad to be here, glad to see all of you here. Uh, in addition to being a host of Roller Martin and Filter, I'm also a founder of Black Star Network, which is the only uh, black-owned uh, digital news and information network in the country. I want to drill deeper on the question um, that uh, he asked when it came to the issue of the money. We were here 15 months ago, and we brought the exact same issue up, and virtually nothing has been done. When I say virtually nothing has been done, I'm a part of the Black-Owned Media Collective, where we've been challenging the, these companies in the ad industry, where right now, $322 billion is being spent every single year on advertising, and Black-Owned Media is getting 0.5 to 1% of that. Yeah. Now, that's the ad industry. In 2018, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton had the GAL do a study, which we brought up 15 months ago, uh, where $5 billion was spent by the federal government over five years, the Black-Owned Media got 1% of federal advertising dollars. Uh, since President Biden has gotten to the White House, I met with Susan Rice, I met with them, I've been talking to Congressman, Congressman Hank Johnson, and the problem still persists. But it doesn't just persist in the federal government. It literally persists in the DNC, in the DCCC, in the DSCC, in the DGA, progressive groups as well. We just experienced that in the 2022 election. As somebody who has to deal directly with folks, I can tell you that every single one of those constituencies love to come on our shows. They want to reach our audience, but they don't want to stand with us. I wish Senator Cantwell was here. She said that black-owned media helped get that bill passed. Here's the reality. Most black-owned media couldn't benefit from that bill. Because most of them don't have full-time employees, because you have freelancers. Freelancers couldn't be a part of that particular bill. And so we talk about the issue of money. We talk about the ability to be able to even cover Congress. Most black-owned media outlets 
cannot afford reporters. If you do not get advertising money, you cannot hire staff. And so uh, there are three things that uh, I am asking that should happen. Uh, first and foremost, uh, what, uh, what I would love to see happen uh, is uh, there needs to be uh, a meeting with all of your democratic constituencies to examine exactly how much money was spent specifically the black-owned media in the 2022 midterm elections, and also asking what is their plan for 2024. Because about $9 billion was spent on the total election, and I can tell you, because I talked with many of my colleagues who were virtually ignored. So again, our audience is good enough for you to come do interviews with, but not to spend money. That should happen. Second, you should ask for an immediate examination of every federal agency, who is the ad agency that they use, and what dollars are being spent. The same ad agencies, largely white control, that we have to deal with the general market, they have your federal ad contracts. So we're dealing with the same people in the federal money, and if you need any advice, please go to Congressman Stephen Horsford. When it came to the census money, the CBC fought to get an extra $70 million to be spent on African Americans. The air agency told Congressman Horsford point blank, we are not going to spend any money with any newspaper under 50,000 circulation. That canceled out nearly every black newspaper in America. They told him that directly. They froze us out of census money, and the only reason I got census money is because I literally called out the ad agency publicly on social media and on my show, and they called in a panic, what should we do? And so we see this with COVID money as well. And so you're on a policy making, you're fighting to get the money in, but downstream, they are completely freezing out the folks they're supposed to get. It. So that's a, that, that should absolutely happen. Uh, examination, and, and it could be um, uh, the minority business development agency could actually do this, but it needs to be very specific. The third one, you need to have a Senate hearing specifically on the disparity in the ad industry for black-owned media. Call those, those agencies to the table, invite black-owned media owners, invite black ad agencies, and force them to have to answer the questions, why is it that black folks spend significantly with many of these companies and we represent, in some cases, 20, 30, 40%. There's one company I will not name where we buy 80% of their products and they spend 1% with black people. Those are my three asks. All right. Well, this is, um, we we're just talking about which committee could do this hearing. So one, um, we'll do something on that. Secondly, I'll let Senator Schumer address the advertising, but clearly we'll look at everything with that. And the third thing I will raise again is, I think you know that the content producers, which you are, as Corey just noted, uh, in such a big way, um, are getting screwed right now uh, because of the way things are working on social media. So that is not an excuse about the disparity, but it is a fact about what's going on. But well, that's not where the most money comes from. Uh, the reality is, as an owner, your money comes from ad, it comes from advertising. The ads, ad money, I mean, I'll be clear, Google made in one quarter $66 billion in one quarter in advertising. And actually, if it wasn't for Google, I'm not in business because the reality is with our YouTube channel, we make more from them than anybody else. But what I'm saying is this here, the issue, again, I know how much they make, I got the digital ad piece. But what I'm saying is the agencies, that is the fundamental block for all of us. And I get the content piece, but I bypass Facebook. I can go right to my own consumer with my own OTT app. 
The issue is if the agencies don't advertise with us, we're dead. Hey, so okay. I just want to say specifically, because I don't want to be here 15 months from now and you saying the same things. So first of all, as you know that the CBC, we've been working on this issue uh, for years and um, we've got at least two members of the CBC here. I'm hoping it will be more, but I, I'm gonna, we're gonna continue to put the pressure on and continue to fight. So that's the first thing. And I'm, I appreciate you in a positive way name checking Horsford because he's continuing that in his leadership role uh, right now. Number two, um, it, I, I will, I, I know Chuck will be, will, and I will do this, we'll look at how we're spending money in the DS. Uh, and, and, be, yeah, and to be specific though, I ask this question all the time when I run around the country campaigning for campaigns about uh, spending in African-American communities, because it's critical in a lot of these races, not all of them. I, I mean, I think that Tester got the entire black vote in the last election, all five people in Montana, but, but some of the other Senate races, um, uh, that's a question I ask often, and, and especially because these small radio stations, whatever, are critical in some of these key markets. But I know that, Chuck, we can do an analysis. Yeah, we'll, we'll do an analysis. I think, it, I think at least from the DSCC point of view, it's improved significantly over the, over the last few years. But we'll get you the numbers. Yeah, and then as far as a Senate hearing, we, we discussed that, and, and we can see we have conversations to see if that can happen. Okay. Roland, I use a, a black-owned, black-led uh, campaign media firm, and I'd love to have a chance to talk about how they could do better, get more work. They've done an incredible job for me, and I try to pitch them to everybody who's running. Uh, okay. Those are tough and good questions. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Tia Mitchell with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Morning. Okay, morning. there's good morning. Um, I wanted to ask, I'm relatively new, and um, this particular question is more for Leader Schumer, but you all referenced earlier, for example, Senator Tuberville and the hold he's put on military confirmations. But I feel like people back home though, will we see the Senate, Congress works fast when it wants to. So my question is, there are so many things that I think people back home say, why isn't this a priority? Why can't they move faster? Why can't they get these things done that they say they care about? And so I wanted to get your feedback and perhaps others, you know, what message do you give to people who might not understand the rules and how things work, but they go, why can't Congress get these, this done? Even the, the general who spoke out said, he didn't say Tuberville should end its hold. He said Congress should do its job and confirm these members of the military. That's kind of my question. Well, I think it's a good, Hello. Hello. No, you had a voice. <laughs> at work. He's shutting off my mic. Um, let me just say this. That's Mark. First, uh, what he said was despicable, as you probably saw. I just leaned him on the floor. Um, and this is, you know, I think it shows the kind of tolerance of extreme bigotry uh, that uh, there's, exists in large parts of this country. Maybe all. Um, in terms of, there has been a rule around, sorry, that's how it is, since, I know, for, for decades, maybe centuries, 
that general officers in the military have to be approved by Congress. It passed a long time ago. No one paid much attention to it because no one invoked it. Neither Democrat, Republican, liberal, or conservative, they didn't invoke it. Tuberville is using it, and in my judgment, the blame, and I said this repeatedly, and this is what I would tell constituents, is on the Republican leadership. Tim, Tim, uh, Tim Kaine was asked what would happen if he did it, and he said Schumer would call me into the office and say, cut the, you know what, out. And he would have backed off. McConnell hasn't done that. McConnell's the leader. McConnell appoints Tuberville to committees. McConnell can determine what legislation Tuberville wants is on the floor. He has the ability to tell Tuberville no. And the Republicans have the ability to stop it. So the idea that everyone is to blame for this hurts us and excuses Tuberville's uh, outrageous behavior. So that's what I would tell people, what, what he did, what he's doing on both sides. On the racial side, on three sides, on the racial side, on the abortion side, and on the national security side is outrageous. And we don't hear our Republican colleagues taking him to task. All we need is their su support, and we could shut him down. Okay, good. Well answered. April Ryan with Grio. Thank you so much for having this for Black Press and Blacks in the Press in this room. Um, the black press is very important, as so many people have mentioned at this table, and once you come up with all the information about the communities, etc., Byron Allen, black-owned media company, uh, Allen Media, would love to hear that. But here's my question. In this moment of rollback, in this moment as Republicans are trying to mainstream anti-wokeness, mainstream anti-affirmative action efforts, mainstream anti-integration. We just saw the Supreme Court uh, that directly impacts the Civil Rights Act of 64 and also Brown v. Board. What is this body doing to counter that as race and money touches almost every facet of life? Everything that comes to you, we've seen it in student loans, We've seen it in almost everything from black maternal health. What do you tell the constituents out there who are trying to figure out what's next? How do you fight this? What do you say as this body, the Democrats who are fighting allegedly for black communities, uh, for the ideals of people, what do you tell them in this moment? How do you fight back against all of these issues, the anti against all the laws that we've had in place for the last few decades? For sake of time, is there one senator maybe hasn't spoken yet that might want to pick that one up? That's a really important question that we wrestle with all the time. And what I would say coming from Michigan um, is that, first of all, I say to folks, elections matter. For the first time in 40 years, we elected, not just re-elected a Democratic governor, but a state house, state senate together, and they're acting. You shooting at Michigan State, all the shootings going on all the time, they passed common sense gun legislation. They have moved it forward on education. They're moving forward on strengthening the civil rights laws in Michigan and so on. Elections matter. We had two years of being in the slimmest of slim majorities, 50-50 in the Senate, but having the House of Representatives in Democratic hands and a Democratic president 
and elections matter. There actually, literally, more has gotten done in those two years than maybe any time since, uh, uh, you know, 50 years. Um, so it's hard, I think, for people to see, because everything that's happening has been a focus for 50 years by the Republicans to get to a point where they could repeal Roe, to do everything they can to move us backwards on uh, the civil rights and a whole range of things. And we've got to double down, and we are working, knowing we don't have the House, knowing the craziness in the House representatives, but we are working as hard as we can to get that message out, to let people know what we believe, but also to look at what we've done in the last two years, which is very real. Um, black businesses, more black businesses uh, being created than the last three years, um, black unemployment down, employment in general being down. You know, we are laser focused on stopping this trickle down economics where, where everything only goes to the rich at the top and focusing on people. And, and so in the end, we'll keep doing that. But we now have a picture in Michigan. I can say, okay, you know, elections matter. People came to the polls, they made a difference, and we are doing different things now. We are strengthening our laws regarding union organizing. We, I mean, just point after point after point. And so elections matter, and 2024 is gonna really matter. Okay. Um, Elizabeth Warren. So I think that Senator Stabenow is exactly right. We can't say it loud enough or often enough that elections matter. But I just want to add one more turn of the crank if I can to your question. And that's, I think we really need to treat what's going on with alarm. I mean, a huge ring all the bells. This country is on fire. And that what Senator Tuberville is doing is trying to normalize white nationalism and racism and just put out there was, hey, those are just Americans just like you and me. And those are the people we should arm, and those are the people who should be in our military because, you know, that's just part of Americanism. And he sat there in that interview and said, oh, no, I don't believe in racism because racism sounds bad, but I believe in white nationalism. If that doesn't set everybody's hair on fire in this country, then we are in real trouble because this is an attack on what it means to be a democracy in this nation. Are we a nation that believes some people are better than others? Or are we a nation for all of our faults and for however many times we got this wrong, are actually the people who say, we're at least aiming toward the goal that every kid has an opportunity in this country. And I see this in the context of the moment. It's, this isn't one-off what Senator Tuberville did. This is in the context of a Supreme Court that just said, gave us a twofer in the same week. So we're gonna get rid of affirmative action because after all, we embrace equality. They take every word and turn around what it means. We totally embrace equality. We totally embrace a form of, of, of college admissions that says to white families who have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you can get special help. But people who have been discriminated against over and over and over, you can't do anything to try to level the playing field even a tiny little bit. Same sort of thing on student loan debt. The one thing that we could do to help close the racial wealth gap in America could have closed it by 26 points 
with President Biden's plan on canceling student loan debt gets thrown out by the Supreme Court in an opinion that so clearly should never have been in front of the court because they did not actually have a plaintiff and so clearly did not follow the law. We live in a world in which we've all survived an armed insurrection in which the Republicans want to gaslight us into telling us it was a bunch of tourists who were just having an outing and reasonable people can differ. I, I raise all these because I am really alarmed that we are helping normalize because we are not having a strong enough response to just how dangerous this is. And if we don't underscore that today and tomorrow, and we can't wait for an election. I mean, you're right, of course, Debbie, the elections matter, but we gotta start shutting this down now. Those guys are moving on us and they are moving to take away the fundamental principle of our democracy that everybody gets an opportunity. They are trying to rebuild an America that's always been there. It's always been the tug of war, but they are on the attack to say some people are gonna be better than other people and they wanna normalize that throughout this country and we've gotta call it out for what it is. All right, sorry. Very well said, Rachel Scott of ABC. Thank you so much um, for having us. Access is super important, so I really appreciate the time and the representation today from the senators. Uh, just jumping off on that point, we all know that black voters are the bedrock of the Democratic base. And Senator Booker, I've been in your office, we've talked about how change is slow when it comes to the anti-lynching legislation. But what do you say to voters who are seeing what you're doing, the cap on prescription drug costs, and that won't go into effect though until 2025? A student loan debt, for instance, right? What the Supreme Court did is going to impact black women the most in this country. So what do you say to black voters out there who are seeing the work that you're doing, who are seeing the efforts, but aren't necessarily feeling the impacts heading into 2024? And just a quick follow-up for Senator Senator Mayor Chuck Schumer. Um, at what point would you consider at all possibly bringing any of these military nominations forward, like CQ Brown that are super important? Look, on the second question, we, the burden is on McConnell, Boone, and the Republican leadership. If we do one, we'll do 10, we'll do 15, we'll do nothing else because it takes two, two, three hours for each one. There are 600 of them. So we cannot let the burden falsely be on our shoulders. It's got to be on theirs. They're doing it. And we'll play their game. We will play their game if we start doing this. And then they'll do it for everything. Someone could get up and say, until affirmative action is abolished, I'm holding up everybody. We cannot let these few people who are MAGA right push the blame onto us when it's them that's doing it. And not just them, the Republican leadership. So I feel very strongly about this, very strongly. And we will play Tuberville's game if we give him a vote. And we're not doing it, okay? I really feel, I'm sorry, and I love you, Rachel. <laughs> All the time for questions at our... Um, I just love Rachel, you just love Rachel, you don't want the rest of I love you, and particularly I love the cousin more. I, eat cousin. I know, I just talk to you every day. I Stay eat, with the cousin. I eat uh, April's cousin's restaurant every so often. Melba. Uh, excellent. Okay, so we're, we have two great journalists left, Reverend oh, Mark Thompson uh, with... 
make it plain and simple work with I, I was just trying to answer so Rachel. Rachel, Rachel oh, okay. Another question here. <laughs> yeah. okay. I have to open up the floor. Thank yeah. you all for being here. I love you, you all. <laughs> Please clean it up. Thank you. Uh, good to see everyone. Thank you uh, for having us as always. Um, first of all, I want to uh, concur with uh, Roland, and I think even if we look around the table, the urgency of this is uh, if those types of matters are not addressed, then there will be fewer and fewer of us each year when we do this. You know, so just as everything else is on the block, affirmative action, student loans, everything is going on, so is the very existence of uh, black media, and not just black-owned media, um, we're looking with this affirmative action decision. White-owned media is getting rid of us and firing DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion executives. So just want to make that point. Um, um, you all know I, I try to combine three questions into one, so it's only going to be two. Um, historic low in black unemployment in May. Okay. But I was back, shot back up. 90%, 267,000 of 300,000 new unemployment claims were African American. You know, what do you all think about that? Is, are, is, are you thinking about ways to address that? And, and the second part is the obvious question, Senator Booker, that I'll always ask. Uh, where are we on, on S40 now that we no longer, the Democrats no longer control the House? Um, isn't it now time even most appropriate for the Senate to take the lead? And as we're losing on these other fronts, do we argue to go back to what the status quo was? Or isn't it time to go further and say it's time to have the study bill passed so we can establish what reparations really, affirmative action was never reparations. Anyway, so at some point, when do we get to a place where we, the Senate takes that on even more more earnestly, more forcefully, and more outspokenly? So I'm, I'm gonna to try to answer both. My colleagues, most things are starting up at 10 a.m., so a lot of my colleagues yeah. have had to go, so forgive me, uh, next time we're gonna to try to remember to start in reverse out there. That's right, that's right. I'm always at the end. Yeah, no, Thank you. yeah. I know. So, just, <laughs> so just real quickly, you know, the, the economy and the signs overall, my staff just gave me reams of the most current data about African-American um, uh, uh, economic uh, strength like, relative to where we were before the pandemic. And there's, a, there's so much to be proud of, yeah. but there's a lot of frustration. Uh, 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 Senator Bennett just leaned over to me and expressed frustration about our fights to try to make this the child tax credit permanent, uh, the expansion of the child tax credit permanent. So there's a lot to be good, proud about, but the reality is we did see some painful numbers. Whenever economic trends slow, they're always hurting uh, minority and, and African-Americans the most. And we're very conscious of that. And there's still a lot of work being done in multiple committees here to try to address issues of black economic well-being. It's challenging, and this gets me to HR 40, it is very challenging when the House of Representatives is controlled there. So things we do, we have to do them in tandem. A lot of them must pass bills. You're gonna see everything from uh, Senator Stabenow's heroic work trying to get a farm bill done, uh, and what's going to be done on what she's doing on uh, um, on, on food stamps and more. Um, it, it, there's going to be a lot of good efforts going on to again help with the floor for African Americans and expand the possibilities of the ceiling. On on HR 40, remember, let's just be clear about what the bill is. It's it's studying the issue, right? It's not even that ambitious. 
It's not saying that we, it's not a, rep, a bill to establish reparations. It's a bill to understand where there was a specific economic harm. Let's, for the first time, take a good look at it. I, I can't tell you how many people uh, in the last five years, friends of mine, quite enlightened friends of mine, didn't know about the multiple black massacres that happened. It wasn't just Tulsa, Oklahoma, but heck, lots of folks didn't even know about that. There is these, the, this historical amnesia in our country of specific harms that were done to African Americans. And the history of uh, even that period of uh, the post uh, um, uh, the Civil War period, a lot of folks don't even understand the promises that were made, this institution and the things that were done to help African Americans be restored, repaired for the damages of slavery. So this is something that we believe uh, that there should be a study being done, but, I'm, but to push something right now that has no chance uh, to the floor of the United States Senate when you just heard every minute of us trying to get judges done and a lot of the other things that we can get done are, for me are the priority right now in the United States Senate is to get things over the line before the end of this Congress. Sybil and then Elizabeth wanted to add something. Sybil, maybe she can answer your question. I um, thank you all very much. First of all, Senator Klobuchar, thank you for um, inviting us and, and having this um, discussion of ideas and, and that are so very vital. And thank you for coming on our What You Need to Know show to talk about uh, female health. We appreciate that and uh, your leadership in that. And um, I want to also thank Roland Martin, uh, Reverend Dr. Roland Martin, uh, for his words about African-American-owned businesses, and especially those of us in the media, we are a black female-owned business. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we are hit especially hard, as you can imagine. And it took a lot out of our budget to get here today. Um, but it is necessary uh, for us to be here. And so uh, with our interest in black female health, as well as, and I'm getting to the point, Roland, um, as well as uh, our base, which is black females, and that is also your base. We've been talking about um, voter registration for years, all my years on the Joiner Show, that was a focus of ours. And now we are at a point where our young people are not understanding this. However much we may stand on our soapboxes and cry about the necessity of registering to vote, their moms are doing it. And speaking to a, a comedian the other day talking about voter registration, he said, well, everybody I know is registered. Yeah, but you don't know the young people. So my point is, what are you all doing to get out the information and to make the contacts uh, through your organizations for young black people to get involved and understand the necessity when we're talking about Supreme Court decisions, when we're talking about um, uh, the, the, the uh, things that the president has done, we have to get that information out there. We will do it for you. We'll get the, the information out there. But we also want to know how are you working to affect the change in your voter registration? Okay, I'm gonna, Elizabeth, I wanna say something, Alex, um, and then we'll end with Raphael Warnock because the Reverend has the last word. Mine is actually going to be quick. I do want to say you're right on this, and one of them is to talk about student loan debt because this one connects so directly. But I just have to say a quick word about unemployment, mm -hmm. and that is the Fed put out a report in December and said their goal with their interest rate hikes is to put 2 million people out of work. Right, 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 right. Understand that will disproportionately be 2 million black people. That's right. 
and brown people. And the fact that we just keep rolling along with the Supreme Court putting, I'm sorry, with the Fed putting out one after another after another interest rate hike, knowing that that is the intent. They see that as their principal tool to bring down inflation at a time when many economists believe the problem is not a demand side problem. The problem is we've had supply chain kinks, we have a war in Ukraine that has disrupted both energy and food supplies. I can go into the rest of it, but I just want to say, I know that it sometimes feels like to some people talking about things like the Fed raised interest rates, oh, they're doing the right thing to try to protect us. No, what they're doing is they're saying some people got to bear the cost so that other people can pay less. And that's not right, and they need to be called out for it. Right, right. good point, good point. Okay, Alex. Just uh, on the voter registration front, uh, obviously a lot more to be done short term, you know, how we're investing on the campaign side through uh, voter registration organizations, et cetera. But as a former Secretary of State, I want to make a plug for a, the policy of automatic voter registration. Yeah. Hard for us to mandate federally, right? Elections are run by states. We can incentivize, and we've been trying to do that with other voter protections, access to the ballot measures. But when we talk about automatic voter registration, as has been implemented in a number of states, here's why I'm such a big believer. It's not just because we are making it easier, as opposed to harder, for people to register to vote. We know who is disproportionately eligible, but unregistered. And it includes disproportionately young people, uh, potential voters of color, et cetera. But I want to go a step further because the power of automatic voter registration isn't just on voter registration. If you're eligible to vote in America today without registering, you do not get the voter information guide if your state offers one. If you're eligible to vote today without registering, you do not get the sample ballot in the jurisdiction that offer that prior to election day. If you're eligible to vote but not registered, you are not being reached out to by candidates and campaigns and political parties. So the sheer you know, systematically adding people to the voter rolls generates that activity from your state, from your local jurisdiction, from candidates, from campaigns, and, and, and creates that buzz that is going to lead to more turnout. I was a believer in it before we implemented it in California, having seen the success of it and the impact of it, record turnouts in six of the last eight elections with record high voter registration, it works. Hard to implement in the states that just don't want to. Well, I'm from Texas, so I understand. Right, <laughs> but, but it just didn't, ah. right? But you can imagine, you can imagine. Well, thank uh, you all so very much. Uh, uh, Pastor, just for yes, sir, just, just before you close it out. I'll let this reverend give the benefit. No, 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 no. Just, just point of order, and I'm remiss for not doing it since I did mention reparations. Our queen mother and Senator Stabenow's constituent, uh, Joanne Watson, uh, passed away and was a staffer of Congressman Conyers from the time H.R. 40 was first introduced, president of the city council in Detroit, and she was queen mother of our movement. So we just want to lift up her name. And Absolutely. Just, well, I'm sorry we're closing it out, but I've been, I wasn't going to say anything more on reparations. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned Joanne. Um, um, uh, and uh, it, um, she was amazing and very, very strong. But one of the things she and I talked about, about 
Uh, and one of the reasons that when we did the American Rescue Plan, I said my number one priority of chair of agriculture was to wipe out black farmer debt, but BIPOC farmers, because that was the first, and going from slavery into people trying to do their own land, own their own land and farm, and they, not, they did not have access to USDA programs or loans, or the supports to be able to allow them to be successful to own that land and to be doing those things. And so when we talk about reparations, I really view that as the first, you know, the, the, or one of the things that, because it was at the very beginning in terms of access to land, and now heirs of those farmers and so on, this discrimination continues. And so but thank you for uh, bringing that up, Corey, and, uh, and I'm great to, uh, Reverend Senator Warnock, obviously leaders on our committee on this, but Joanne was a champion before before it was cool. That's right. For a long time. Thank you. I apologize. I'm going to defy gravity and, and be the briefest in the back of the Thank you all so very much. Um, and we will keep the lines of communication wide open. Please. Um, you help shape the perspective which shapes policy. And uh, thank you so very much for your time. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister or brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.